Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you out tonight. It's good to just be able to worship with you and study God's Word with you yet again. Uh, really appreciate the songs that have been led. I love that first song that we sang. I love singing about the love of Christ, and uh, that one has always been one of my old favorites. I, I particularly was was moved by that last one. That's a hymn that we sing often, but um, I don't know why. I literally forgot that I was coming up right after this song, so I, I appreciate that. I, I, I think those lyrics are so well put. I think it describes perfectly how we ought to think when we look at God's creation, and it has been a beautiful day this uh, today, and so let's you know let's not forget those those small little blessings that we should be grateful for, especially on a day like today where a lot of people are with their family. So uh, I appreciate the songs that have been led so far, and and they've just been so encouraging as we have have been singing through them. It's just an encouragement to see you all here again this evening. Um, but before we get to the lesson, I kind of just wanted to start with a, a bit of a. Not a parable, but but a little bit of a short story. Uh, I found this while I was studying for this lesson this week, and I just I thought that it was pretty spot on of some of the things that I wanted to talk about. But it, it really displays four characters and some of the rationality that these four characters had when they come into a particular predicament. It says there was a doctor, a lawyer, a little boy and a preacher on a small private plane for a Sunday afternoon flight. Now, if you've heard it before, don't spoil the ending. But you have four, those four people on an afternoon flight. All of a sudden, the plane developed engine trouble. In spite of the pilot's best efforts, the plane was going down. Finally, after minutes of the pilot trying to figure the situation out, he grabbed a parachute and yelled to the passengers that they'd better jump before he himself left from, uh, leapt from the plane. Unfortunately, there were only three parachutes remaining while there were still four people on board. The doctor grabbed one immediately and said, I'm a doctor. I save lives, so I must live. He jumped out. The lawyer then said, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are the smartest people in the world. I deserve to live. He also grabbed a parachute and jumped. The preacher looked at the poor young boy and said, Son, I've lived a long and full life. You are young and have your whole life ahead of you. You you take the last parachute and live in peace. The little boy looked up at the old man, handed the parachute back to the priest and said, or back to the preacher and said, "Not to worry, sir. The smartest man in the world just jumped off with my school bag." <laughs> now again, you may have known where that was going from the beginning. But I just, I just unfortunately, you have to admit sometimes, not even sometimes, often people like to justify their actions and their rationality like the lawyer in the story. Rashly, not fairly assessing the situation, and ultimately weakly rationalizing the immoral decision that they themselves come up with. Uh, you just look at that story and you ask, well, how did it work out for the lawyer doing that? But unfortunately, you know, this happens all the time in not so humorous situations. Today, there are all kinds of questions that even not just random people, but Christians will, will ask as they try to justify certain situations. Just take, for example, a few of these, these questions that sometimes people ask. You, sometimes people will say, well, is it okay to lie if the truth will be more painful to tell or to, or to receive? Is it okay to have premarital sex if I know, I just know, I'm going to marry this person anyway? Is it okay that we just live together even though we're not married? Is it okay to watch an explicitly immoral show if no one else is around to watch it with me? No one sees what I'm doing? 
Or is it okay to curse if no one else is going to hear it? Unfortunately, these are questions that people ask. And, 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 and again, Christians ask. And this is a real problem because what are these people trying to do? Whenever they ask this, you see that word, if, if. Is it okay if? They want to try and qualify it. But what are these people trying to do? Ultimately, boiling it down, they're trying to give a defense for what they know is wrong. They, they're trying to give good intentions as an excuse ultimately to sin. Now, what I want to discuss tonight is this notion that, that no matter what the justification that's given is, no matter what someone wants to excuse sin with, guess what? Sin is still sin. It doesn't matter what reasoning we have. It doesn't matter how we try to qualify it, the conditions we put in. Oh, but, but what if, but what if, but what if? It doesn't matter what if. Sin is always sin. And I want to look at one Bible story in particular as we look at this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, in verse 6 beginning, it says, David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, with tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, but because the oxen nearly upset it, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? Now, we're, we're going to stop there. We're going to look at this whole passage here. But, but uh, you, you think about this situation here. The ark of the covenant had been lost for a brief moment in time because Israel had been so rebellious in the days of the judges, and, and this was just kind of a sign of that. They lost the ark of the covenant this kind of symbol of, of, of God dwelling in their midst. And so uh, it finally came back after a time, and it was, under, uh, it was back into Israel, but they were trying to bring it where it should rightfully be, in a more honorable place. But what did they do? As we're going to see, regardless of their reasoning, regardless of their justification, all throughout this chapter, ultimately, what they were trying to do, how they were trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant, it was sinful. God had already told them about how it was to be transported. God had already given them many instructions. He was very clear. It's not like, this is so ambiguous. What are we supposed to do? No. They knew. They could know. They decided to go with their own judgment. They decided to go with their own opinions. And it led to disaster, literally led to death. And so there's something to learn from this. Now, regardless of what they wanted to justify this with, it was sinful. First of all, it didn't matter that everyone involved agreed to do it. In verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. That's a lot of people, a lot of people that you think you'd want to get the opinion of. David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests 
and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So what do you see? Every, everyone thought it was a good idea. Not just the people of Israel, not just, you know, the choice men, the leaders of Israel, but even David. This was David's idea. Everyone, all the people that you'd want to be on your side, they were on the same side. They said, this is a good job. This is a good idea. The majority said, this is what we should do. But the majority doesn't make the rules, as you see on the chart before you. Who makes the rules? God does. They inquired of everybody except God. You know, I, and you think about that. It, 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 ultimately, it does not matter what the majority of people say, regardless of the issue. Regardless of the issue. You, what, did, what did God tell Moses again so long ago when, when, when the people were grumbling against him and ultimately grumbling against God? What did he say? Hey, you know what? If, if the majority of the people want to go back to Egypt, it's, it's probably for the best. No, that's not what God said. Several times they grumbled, and what did he do? He showed them that they were wrong. The majority often make the wrong decision, especially when you look throughout the Bible, the history of the Bible. Almost every time, the majority gets it wrong. And a lot of that has to do sometimes with, with the mob mentality, but we'll get to that in a moment. But, but you, you look throughout a few, just a few, just a handful of stories in the Bible. The people of Israel, they wanted to go back to Egypt. The majority of the people wanted to go back to Egypt. Caleb and Joshua, Moses and Aaron, they said, no, 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 we, we can take Canaan. We can do this. Four out of the entire assembly of Israel? That's messed up. But, but, but hey, it's the majority. The majority said we should do They were wrong. The majority of people yelled, crucify him about Jesus. The majority of the people said, we don't care what he's done. We don't care that we don't actually have a, a good, tangible piece of evidence that he is a, you know, a criminal. We want him dead. Crucify him. They were wrong. The majority of people, as we kind of talked about earlier this morning, and even in the Bible class on Wednesday, in Acts chapter 19, you have an assembly that actually comes together in Ephesus trying to, to basically get Paul, put him to death. And what you find is, well, the majority was wrong, obviously, but a lot of the people didn't even know what they were doing there. That's always how it is with mob mentality. People get sucked in. They don't even know what they're doing. But hey, even though that's the case, Paul should be put to death, right? <laughs> no, shake your head this way. <laughs> that's not how it works. The majority so often, in every case you see in the Bible, people were thinking irrationally. They were just not thinking. Now, with all that being said, Think about how sometimes people might do this today. If the majority, um, you know, especially when, when COVID happened and we started doing a lot of things online, people started getting some really good ideas, right? You know, if the majority of, of the congregation decided that it was easier to assemble at home over the internet, that would just make it okay to quit meeting altogether at the building only to meet, meet on Skype. That, hey, the majority of people say that this is a good idea, but, but is that what God has said? What did, it, what did it say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25? No, we are to come together. There is a consistent expectation that we come together and not just meet on Skype. That's not enough. No, we're supposed to be uh, assembling together. 
What if, what if the majority decided to partake of the Lord's Supper only once a year? Let me tell you something. The biggest part of the religious world, the, the religious world, a big majority of that world says we should only do it once a year. And you can, I've even listened to some of the reasoning they have. Well, if you do it every week, it kind of takes away from the impact. It kind of takes away from the power. <laughs> Whose problem is that? is that? Is that God's problem or is that your problem? That's your problem. You need to deal with that. And, and you know what? The majority of people in our country, they decide that it's just one day a week that we should partake of the Lord's Supper. But what did, what did the Bible say consistently? The first day of the week. And I loved how Brother Adam said that as he, was, as he was kind of trying to guide our thoughts before we partook of the Lord's Supper this morning. He says each first day of the week. I will say ultimately, I think it doesn't have to be that drastic. It doesn't have to be that outright. But it can be very subtle. Ultimately, we do this by, by inquiring of everyone else, getting everyone's counsel, everyone's advice, except God. We can even go to many learned students of the Bible, but unless we come to God, well, then we've made a mistake. And, and just a page over in chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, in verse 13, even David says, Because you did not carry it at the first... The Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. They sought everyone else. They didn't seek the one person that mattered. And so it led to disaster. So it didn't matter that everyone involved agreed with it. What mattered is, what did God say? Well, another thing, it didn't matter that they were trying to accomplish something good. I, I, will, I will admit, I, I think that they were trying to accomplish a right thing. They shouldn't have lost the Ark of the Covenant in the first place. But even though something needs done, does that mean we get to do whatever we want to accomplish that good thing? I like what J.R. said a long time ago. He was talking, he was giving a lesson on authority. And he was talking about generic and specific authority. And, and, and one of the things he said is, I mean, honestly, I, th I think we understand this pretty clearly. We get that we need to preach the gospel. We, and we, there are ways that we can do that. I mean, we could go by boat. We could go by, by plane. We could go by car. We could, there are many ways that we could go and preach the gospel. But I'm pretty sure that it's clear to all of us that we're not going to preach the gospel in a stolen vehicle. Right? No, that, that's pretty clear. But, but what we're trying to do is preach the gospel. We're trying to evangelize. But the ends don't justify the means. You don't get to go steal someone's car in the name of God and say, I'm doing this because I want to, I want to do something righteous. Guess what? You've done something unrighteous. And you're trying to mix God in with that unrighteousness. That's a problem. And, and you even, in, in verses 5 and 6, all the way to 8, it says, David assembled all Israel together from the Shihar of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, which his name is called. Skip down to verse 8. Remember what it said there? David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. Wow. What a magnificent display of worship, right? And, and it was. It was a magnificent display of worship. And it would have looked good to everyone. It was a spectacular thing to see. But just because it was a spectacular thing to, to be a part of, to listen to, to hear... Their unrighteousness, their, their sin that they were engaging in. That 
All of that worship couldn't, was not going to atone for that unscriptural act. Why? Because the ends don't justify the means. We don't get to try and, you know, overlook sinfulness because, hey, we're just trying to do something right. People do this all the time when they try to add to the worship. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but people try to bring instruments in. People try to bring a fellowship hall in. People try to do all kinds of things. And what do they say? Well, I'm really just trying to bring more glory to God. Who does that sound like again? Oh, yeah. First Samuel chapter 15, Saul. What was the direction? What was the instruction? You destroy them all. And you, destroy, you devote everything to destruction. Saul brought back the best of the flock. And he said to Samuel, oh, but look what we're going to do. We're going to offer the best of it to God. And Samuel says, speaking from God, inspired by God, what does God desire more? Obedience or sacrifice? Obedience. The ends don't justify the means. So we need to make sure that we're not trying to make the same justification that Israel was, that even David was at this moment. Not only that, but it didn't matter that it... <laughs> that it worked for the world. And I, and I put that in quotation marks because you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 6 in verses 6 through 16, and, and it's interesting because while the Ark of the Covenant, a little bit of history, was, it was in the land of the Philistines, what you find is they were successful in putting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and trying to send it away because it had caused so much destruction and chaos in their land. It had started plagues, the, you have that wonderful story of, of that Baal statue falling down and, and, I mean, bowing before God, the Ark of the Covenant. They, it was wreaking havoc on their land, on the people. And so what did they do? They put it on a cart, and it worked for them. Let me just, let me just say, just because the world did something and it looks successful, and they did something another way that God has prescribed, even if it looks successful, that doesn't mean that it is actually successful, that it is going to achieve what the will of God actually is. If someone goes up and, and you see a sign and it says, uh, lethal, uh, uh, lethal electric fence, <laughs> and they, you know, they get double dog dared, they go and touch it, they get you know, thrown back about five feet, but they get up, they survived. So you look at them and you say, okay, then that means I guess we're all going to survive. Listen, if imagine how the Israelites could have looked at the Philistines. Oh, look, they barely survived. So that means that's what we want to do. I, I, I want to do a lot more than just barely survive. I, I want to do something that's actually successful. And what's successful? Doing what God actually wants. Nothing righteous is being accomplished by doing something the way the world does. We need to be doing something because this is what God has purposed. This is what God has prescribed. Um, there, there, well, I'll just tell you who. J.R. was talking to me about this story. They, they were going past this um, very big denomination. It was, it was huge. And um, they were getting all kinds of visitors every week. And they were just expanding. And they were doing all these things. Uh, and, one of the, and some of the ways they were doing that was they were just making every worship service a concert, adding you know, smoke, uh, and the smoke machine and the spotlights and making everything very modern, making everything just look so good that way. And they were just bringing all kinds of stuff and adding all kinds of things. And what it was doing, it, I mean, it looked successful. It looked like people were coming to the Lord. They were coming to church every week. There were thousands of people gathering at this big old building. And a guy just looked over and, and said to Jared, you know, we could learn something from them. You know how Jared responded? 
Oh, yeah, we could. We could learn to put the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart that we built. And you know what he was trying to say? Yeah, we're not going to learn anything good from them. It may look like they're being successful, but ultimately, what are they doing? They're bringing in people in for superficial, fickle reasons. They're not coming to worship God. They're coming to be pleased. They want to be a, 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 a spectator, not a participant. We don't want to look at the world and say, oh, we could learn something from them. There's nothing that we can learn from them other than what we don't want to look like. Because only God tells us how we should look. There was another, there was a Bible class that me and Paige were a part of um, uh, some time ago. And I think he had good intentions, which is kind of the, the point of the lesson. But, but he, he put a video up for all of us to watch. And it was about this, this denominational pastor uh, he ultimately, he wasn't a pastor, as, as the Bible says uh, a man should be, uh, the qualities a man should have to be a shepherd. And, and it turns out he wasn't even a Christian. <laughs> but he was preaching this powerful message, and he was talking to people about how they needed to be. And, 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 and I mean, he was really going hard on the lesson. And at the end of the video, the, the Bible teacher just said, look at how effective this lesson was. Look at how many people stood up and said, I've been doing something, and I want to try and, I want to try and do this a little bit differently. I want to try and be maybe more active. You know, maybe that's how it ended. Maybe you see a lot of people get up, and it looks successful, but that man in the video he didn't even have the gospel. And here he is in front of a host of people saying, this is what you need to do. The man doesn't even know what it means to be a Christian. So we're not going to look at anyone. We're not going to look at the world. We're not going to look at the people who say that they're just following God. We are going to look to God to follow him. And so we need to be so, so very careful that we're not just looking at the world and saying, oh, but it worked for them. Only God determines what is righteous and what is a good work. Not only that, but it didn't matter that it was maybe looking at this command, that it was a more tedious part of the law, or maybe just a smaller part of the law. Let me tell you something. It wasn't too small for God. It was still very important to him. Over in Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 4, and you could look at a few other passages, but in Numbers chapter 4, in verse 5, it says, uh, beginning in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 4, speaking about who was allowed to actually carry the Ark of the Covenant, how they were to do so. Beginning in verse 5, it says, When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. Now in Exodus chapter 25, verses 14 through 15, it gives even more information about the, how careful they are supposed to be. When the poles were inserted into those little gold circles at the Ark of the Covenant, it was never supposed to be removed. This is how they carried it. And there was only a select group of, of Levites that were allowed to carry it. It wasn't just anybody. Now, I'll go through all that just to say, there is a lot to take from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy. There is a lot of things that we are supposed to look at and, and actually take in. And the Israelites especially, this was their life. There was not one thing that they were supposed to just overlook. But what did they do sometimes? They overlooked some things. And why? Because, well, this is just a smaller part. This, this isn't going to matter as much as, as, as something else, right? This isn't going to matter as much as murder, right? And ultimately, that's what the Pharisees did time and time again. You know, when you look at 1 Chronicles 13, there's even, uh, there's, there's a little bit of, of information that's given about Uzzah that, that would indicate that he grew up around the ark. 
that he actually uh, was related to Abinadab where the ark was before they tried to take it. And because he was related to Abinadab, he would have had maybe a, a lot more association or a lot more um, interaction just being around the Ark of the Covenant more than anybody else. Well, even if that was the case, does that mean that his commonplace view of the Ark was acceptable? Well, he's just used to it. What is that supposed to mean? How do you ever get used to the holiness of God, the glory of God? So, so that doesn't matter. People could say, it's just a small thing. Coming to the assembly, it's just a small thing just to assemble. That's smaller than anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. It, it, singing, it's just a small thing. We don't really have to engage in the singing. Bible class, it's just a small thing. We can miss that for a game. Bible class, it's just such a small thing. We don't have to think anything about it. We don't have to prepare our minds for it. We don't have to try to interact in it and try to help and give comments and, and help the Bible class along. We don't have to think about any of those things. Why? Because it's just such a small thing. Again, who says? Do you get to decide what is small and what is important to God? No, it is only God. And so we need to be careful that we're not looking at any part, any command as just, oh, this doesn't matter as much. It all seems to matter to God. It matters so much that when Uzzah goes just too far, no further that God says he can even walk another step, he puts him to death. All of it, all of it, none of it should have happened. Uzzah went way too far because he went and he touched it. Why? Because maybe it was just commonplace to him. He didn't get to walk another step. <laughs> Everyone else there, they received mercy that day. Finally, it didn't matter that this regulation had been written so long ago. When you look at how long ago this was written, it was written about maybe approximately, approximately, I could be mistaken, but approximately 500 years had passed since Moses wrote this law down. And what does God indicate? It's still just as important today. 500 years, and it's still just as impactful. It's still just as expected to be obeyed. That's striking to me, and I think it should be striking to you. I, I, people still try to act like, because we're so far removed from when the New Testament was written, well, that means that there are some things that we get to change. I was reading an article preparing for a, a Bible class, a high school Bible class, a while ago, and we were going to be talking about homosexuality. And in this article, this woman begins to revise everything that God had said about homosexuality in the Old Testament. She goes through so many different passages that talk about homosexuality as a sin. She talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and why they were destroyed because of homosexuality. And she says, well, you know, it, it really what God was trying to do, he was trying to make the human race, you know, more uh, uh, bigger throughout the, po the population, bigger throughout the world. I mean, it's not really that homosexuality is a sin. He was just trying to get people to procreate. It's not really that homosexuality is a sin. And why is that? Because it was written so long ago. Now we have, now that it's more modern, we have updated information. We have an updated justification is all it is. You can insert whatever you want to there. But people say all the time, you know, customs change. But guess what? God's law doesn't change. Just because customs change, that means nothing. What does the Hebrew writer say about, about God? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so we need to be careful we don't view it that way. And this should give us encouragement because we're 2,000 years removed from the commandments that are given about the Lord's Supper. But we can be just as confident in the fact that we are supposed to be partaking in this. 
We are approximately 4,000 removed, uh, 4,000 years removed from the, the, the greatest commandments being penned down. But we still are obligated to make sure that those are, we hold those in, in our hearts as the two greatest commandments. We're approximately 4,000 years removed or so to the, to, the, to the law where it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. But guess what? Still just as impactful, isn't it? We don't want to look at any portion of God's law and say, oh, that was just written. It was 2,000 years ago. Would you say that about the cross? I think ultimately that's what people imply. Because guess what? That was 2,000 years ago too. Does that mean that we're going to look down on that, despise that, consider it a small thing? No. It is, not only is it still just as important, with every day, it should become more and more important in our lives. It doesn't matter that it happened 2,000 years ago. That's the very basis of our salvation. So with all that being said, it may be, as you look at this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, there was all kinds of ways that they could have tried to justify their actions. But ultimately, what you see is it was sinful. It didn't matter how they tried to justify it or rationalize it in their head. It was against God's will. And, it, and God proved it. Your intentions may be good, but that doesn't make going against God's word and his re revealed will any less sinful. So are we truly doing God's will or are we simply taking advantage of his mercy? Because I think that's one of the main themes you actually see in this story. These people, wow, were given so much mercy. None of them deserved another breath. Just carrying the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. Even David was guilty of that. As righteous as he was. Christian, are you, are, put yourself in this story. Who, who are you? Are you being an Uzzah who, who just keeps disobeying? And are you going to continue to be an Uzzah until it's just too late? Until the, the, the worst possible outcome comes? Or are you going to be a David? Who, just a page over, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, he inquires of the Lord and what does he find? He catches himself in sin, he confesses it, and then repents before his advocate. We have a great advocate today, if you are a Christian. So make that right today. Don't be an Uzzah. Be a David. If you're not a Christian, I would just add to this. God has made it so easy to inquire what we must do to be saved. It's not ambiguous. It's not vague. In fact, I'd say it's even more clear than how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be transported. That's what's so sad about the story, in fact. It, it could have been so easily avoided. And that's exactly what people are going to think in judgment. One of the reasons it's going to be so sorrowful on that day is because it could have so easily been avoided. How do we avoid that? You've got to be washed of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so are you willing to do that this evening? Do you believe that he is the son of the living God? Are you willing to repent of all of your sins? All of the things that he says you need to do away with, that you need to cut out, no matter what it, what it is. You're, gonna will, you're willing to be faithful. Are you going to confess publicly that he is Christ, the son of the living God, that you will be with him till the day of your death and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life? You can make that happen tonight. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.